Psalm 86. This is our second Sunday in this psalm. We'll read it in its entirety, but we looked at the first half last week. We'll look at the second half this morning. Psalm 86. It's a psalm of David. It's a prayer. It's um, a very lengthy prayer, and it has a lot of features and petitions to it. It it is, in some sense, as we mentioned last week, kind of a model prayer in the sense of what all the prayer entails. But hear the word now of the Lord. Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you and you will answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in the truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me, be gracious to me, give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and have comforted me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We mentioned that this particular psalm is a comprehensive prayer, just 17 verses, but covers an enormous amount of things that I believe that those of us who are disciples of Jesus, who have heard the call, come follow me, who have been giving our lives to understanding the will of God and walking in his ways and trying with the help of God's spirit to become more like Christ, and we are in that frame of mind already, we'll find a prayer like this extremely helpful. As we mentioned last time, just a couple of points in review, in order to have a prayer, you must have access to God. You must have an audience with God. And you must have acceptance from God. You must have Access to God, an audience with God, and acceptance 
from God. And we as believers have all three of these in Christ. We have access to God. He has made a way. Torn down that curtain from top to bottom as His flesh was torn upon the cross. We enter into the presence of the Lord. We have access to Him. We have an audience with God. He has inclined His ear. He has promised to hear our prayers. He has cleared His calendar of all things to be ever vigilant, ever ready to hear us when we pray. And we must have acceptance from God. That is, God knows that we are His. And Jesus Christ has presented us to Him. And we are in Christ now, standing before Him. And whatever it is that the Father thinks of and believes about and embraces in His only begotten Son, we, in Christ, enjoy that acceptability. Think about that for a moment. Whatever God thinks of His Son, when we are in Christ, He thinks that of us. There is no condemnation as He stands as a judge. There is manifold blessing as He stands as the owner of all creation for us to receive an inheritance. We have all of that in Christ. And we also mentioned last week, and this is a quick review, apologize to those who heard all this before, but we have, and we come to this psalm, and in any psalm, it's important for us to keep a few things in mind as to what the psalm might mean and what it may be applicable to us. First and foremost, we should always keep the Lord in mind. How many times is the Lord or God mentioned in this particular psalm? And almost every time it's mentioned in this psalm, it is Yahweh. It is the formal name of God, a more personal uh, relationship expressed in that. Uh, it is the Lord. It is one time used as El, which is the word for the mighty God. And, and over and over, you will not read the psalm, not any psalm, without seeing there God. You see Him in His full person. You see Him in His full manifestation. You see Him in His full being. You see Him as Father. You see Him as Son. You see Him as Spirit. Is the Trinity manifested in the Old Testament? Yes. That's another sermon, but that's your answer. Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity in the Old Testament. One of the things I emphasized last week, and I try to emphasize again, that, and we saw it in one of the verses there, but our prayers to the Father are no different than the prayers of David praying to God. Or Moses praying to God. Or Daniel praying to the Lord. Or Paul or John or any of the other apostles praying to the Lord. The, there's not an Old Testament prayer and a New Testament prayer. They're the saints of all the ages praying to the God of eternity at all times. So when we look into the Old Testament, we're not looking at some uh, primitive notion of prayer. We're looking at a full-blown theology of God as well as a full process that is prayer. And as I mentioned last week, there is not power in prayer. Often I hear people say there's power in prayer. There's not power in prayer. There's power in God. 
Prayer just accesses us to God and He has made all of that access available and possible by way of Jesus Christ. The power is in the divine. The prayer is just our pleas, our cries. There's a sense in which our prayers are pathetic. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord. They're, they have the overtones of sorrow. They have the overtones of pain. They have the stabs of, of, of bitterness. And we also have in our prayer the terrors of all the things that befall us. And the sorrows included in our prayer often are the tones of doubt. Our prayers aren't all that powerful. But God is. And it's our prayer that gets us to the Lord. Well, that was all by way of introduction last time. Look for the Lord God in each and every psalm. He's here. We'll see Him here in a minute. Father, Son, and Spirit. All of His attributes. All of His works. The great opus day, The works of God. We generally think of those in terms of creation. Providence. And redemption. God works overall in these three great theaters of activity. And those are manifested in all of the Psalms. Most uh, people that have studied the Psalms pretty carefully will come to us and say that all the attributes of God, all the manifestations of the glory, the eternality, the immensity, the aseity, everything you can think of about what God is like that we can possibly know from the revelation of Scriptures are included one place or another in the Psalm. Usually manifestly, explicitly stated, but always implied. So look for God God Almighty in the psalm. As you seek Him, that's where you will find Him. Is in His Word. His Word that He gave His people for their prayers and for their praises and for their worship. Also look in the psalm. Don't ever uh, mind looking at David. David wrote most of them. Some of them he did not write. Some were written, of course, in the uh, exile period. Some in the post-exilic period after God's people came back from Babylonian captivity was known as the great indignation, the way God poured out His wrath at that time upon His people for their disobedience. But you'll see David there quite often, and we see him in the Psalms, and we need to know what's the circumstances. Now this particular Psalm, some have said this was a Psalm in which David was pursued by his enemies. And we'll say a little bit more about that because it's in one of the verses. But, but look for David. What kind, of, what kind of trouble was David in? What kind of circumstances is he dealing with? And then look for yourself in the psalm. Now as I mentioned last week, I'm not one of these people that think we need to find ourselves in every verse of Scripture. Every time we find a narrative, we try to find ourselves there. Sometimes that's helpful, sometimes that's applicable, but that's not a good way to always read the Scriptures. But when you read the psalm, See if it's expressing something about your heart. Almost the whole range of human emotion. Everything from anger to the sweetest, tenderest love to the vilest vitriol of imprecatory psalm is there. When you're dis despondent, discouraged, confused, that state of mind is covered. Find yourself in the psalm. Especially your state of mind. Uh, you'll be like the old spiritual. You're standing in the need of prayer. <laughs> and find that place in your soul where you need that, that touch from the Lord. And that's where it comes from as He ministers through His Word to us. And then finally, and very important, don't miss Christ. Christ is in each of the Psalms. 
Not in every single verse necessarily, but you'll find Him if you seek for Him with all of your heart, mind, and soul. You will see Him in the psalm. You will see His person. You will see Christ's work. You will see some of His attributes. You'll see some of the circumstances of His life. You'll see the features of His crownly rule over all the earth in His kingdom. You'll find it in the psalm. Now that's just, that was last week's sermon. So those of you that uh, were here last week, I apologize for repeating that. I just felt like a little bit of introduction was needed there. We, we finished our last week at verse 9, and that's where I'll pick up here, about halfway through. So if you look at verse 9, it says, All the nations shall, uh, you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. All the nations is everybody. Everybody is descended from one person, Adam. We are all of Adam's descent. And all of the groups that have descended from Adam's descent are not different races. There's one race, Adam's race. They are different ethnicities, different families, different people groups, different nations as God has ordered them and congregated and aggregated them together and moved them across the face of the earth. And so that when we get down through the great period of being fruitful and multiply, when we go from one man upon the earth to literally billions upon the earth, we now have a situation where all the ethnicities, even though they're one and they're divided by tongues, by tribes, by kindreds, they all have access to and they all come to God. And what you picture you have here of all the nations that you have made, that's God's created, creative work upon the, upon the peoples, shall come and shall worship and shall glorify. That's the church. That's the people of God. That's the saints of all the ages. That's the gathered community. They have come. They have heard the voice that says, Come, let us worship the Lord. Oh, come into His sanctuary. Come into His tabernacle. They've heard the Lord say, Come, follow Me. And they have come from all tribes, all localities, all nationalities, and they've gathered. We are a truly, as I said as we closed last week, one holy, apostolic, and Catholic Church. Catholic means universal, worldwide. There's just one church. There's just one church. There's never been but one church, and there'll always be one church. We are often denominated. We are often heretical. We are often apostate. We are often mistaken. We are often divided along all sorts of superficial, secular, and human lines, but it does not separate us from the unity that we have in Christ. Here's the key. The closer each of us as church groups and church families, the closer that each of us gets to Christ, the closer we get to each other. And the quest in unity is not to try to find some common organizational structure, but it's to be more Christ-like. If Every person that called upon the name of Christ was like Christ. 
we would have that unity for which Christ prayed and for which we long. And so we need to know that this is the people of God. This is the gathered church. And they're doing the things the church does. They're worshiping and glorifying the Lord. Now verse 10, where he says, For you are great and do wondrous things. Back in verse 5, he said, O Lord, you are good. Now here in verse 10, he says, You are great. Those are the two overarching attributes of God. His greatness, and in that we include His divine attributes of aseity, His self-existence, His immutability, His immensity, and His omni-this, omnipresent, omniscient, and so forth. All of those things contribute to the greatness of God. What Paul calls God's eternal power and Godhead. But then, it's not enough that God is great. For if He was great and yet malevolent and evil and vicious, it would be a horrible thing. But God only matches His greatness with His goodness. And included in His goodness is the things that we speak of later in this psalm. His grace, His mercy, His love, His compassion, His long-suffering, His forbearance. His, his covenant-keeping love and faithfulness that He has to His people. And His general provident care over all of His creation. His goodness. And so the psalmist here says He's good, but he, He's great. And the proof of God's great is what God performs. If God was in eternity great, it would be true. It would be manifestly actual and real. But we wouldn't know it unless He had done something. He is there, but He is not inactive. He is active, and what He has done has performed mighty works. The one that is manifest to us at all times is His creation. That's why those who look at the creation of God, the great stars, the planets, the human uh, person, and the intricacy, and all of the things that's in nature or creation, and denies God, the person that does that, is without excuse. Because God is manifested by His great works and the wondrous things that He does. He is, says, and you are, you alone are God. Not only do we have here that He is the true God, but He is the only God. Everything that exists is through Him. And by the way, everything that exist is for Him and to Him and before Him. That is, it is laid out in His vision. It's under His providence. But He Himself is the only, only one to whom we have any kind of spiritual relationship. All the idols are dead. All the other gods are false. Men tend to want to garner to themselves a pantheon of deities. In the ancient world, it might have been totem. And today, it might be deeply pathological and, and psychological. But there are still gods that we have that are false gods. And unfortunately, we not only garner to ourselves a whole pantheon of gods, but by thus doing, we build 
an entire pandemonium, a whole array of demons, dysfunctions, maladies, troubles, evils, demons that destroy everything. The more we multiply gods, the more we multiply demons and obsessions and the work of the chief demon himself are the works that go exactly against God. He's a murderer from the beginning, Satan is, whereas the Lord is the life, the essence of life and the creator of life. Satan is a destroyer. God is a designer, a builder. He is one that brings forth in creativity. Whereas the Lord is, the Satan is a liar from the beginning, and if he can, he will fill the whole world with lies. He started it in the Garden of Eden, and even today. How many things do you hear with your own two ears during the week, over the media, and in the atmosphere? How many things do you hear that you know are lies? Imagine the number of things you hear that are lies, but you don't know it. As you don't have the data. That's the work of Satan. To fill the earth with the lie. Where that they will worship and serve the lie rather than the truth. And that's exactly what is called upon here in the very next verse. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Do you hear the ring of the teachings of Jesus in this verse? Listen to it carefully. Teach me. And what it means really, it, it doesn't mean to teach in a pedagogical sense. It means to teach in, in terms of marking out. In other words, he's calling upon, uh, David is calling upon the Lord to mark out a way, to show him a path. To do as the old prophet said, this is the way, walk ye in it. Mark out a path. They're paths of righteousness. Mark out a path for me. Show me a way that I may follow. It's not, it's not uh, by accident that the early church was called the way. And Jesus speaks of Himself as what? The way. The way to God. The way of salvation. The way to live. And in this marking out of this, of this path, the next thing that's called for is that I may walk. You've got to walk down the path. In what? In your truth. Hear the voice of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what the psalmist is calling for. The psalmist here is begging for God the Father to send God the Son. So He can show us a path. So He can be a way. And so He can declare to us in His own person, the truth. And that's what, that's what the psalmist is calling for. And this, uh, this idea of your way is to walk in truth. Your whole life, your whole conversation, your, your uh, manner of life. Walking in truth. Truth is basically a mindset. A perspective. A worldview. And you notice here he says... Unite my heart to fear your name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you're to know wisdom for living, 
It's to come through this avenue, this avenue of the way of the Lord, which is Christ, walking in the truth, who is Christ. And it's interesting, he said, unite my heart. And that's exactly what is, uh, is being uh, told here. He says, uh, give my heart integrity. Uh, make it consistent. Make my thoughts and my affections those that you want them to be. And, and give me the, the purity. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Some of you know I was privileged for 20 years of my life, probably the best years of my life physically, to uh, clean swimming pools. That's what I did for a living. I cleaned and serviced swimming pools. And uh, one of the things that I would do from time to time, those of you who have swimming pools and you have the kind of uh, filter, there's several filter systems, but one of the filters is a diamontaceous earth, which means you put in a ground-up seashells, actually, a powder form, back in, and it coats the panels inside your big tank, you're inside your big filter, and as the water comes in, it cannot get through. The water cannot get through unless it goes through this fine, fine earth, this fine powder, and as it comes through there, all the pure impurities and, the, and, and all of the uh, things that contaminate your pool stay in that earth and make that earth dirty but it doesn't get through to the panels inside that then the clear water under the pressure of the pump and the flow then flows back to your swimming pool that's how all filters work for one way or another from time to time I would have someone call me they just couldn't get their pool clear it was kind of cloudy and they wondered what it is and I'd look over there and I'd see that they had one of those DE filters and then I would open it up and take the wrenches and pull the thing apart and look in there. And lo and behold, before long, I would see that one of those panels, and there were several of them in each pool in different configurations, but one of those panels would have a tear in it, a hole. And it'd be a huge uh, filter, and it may have many square feet of filtration, but there'd be just a little one-inch tear in one of those panels. And under the pressure of the water coming from the pump pushing in, it would push all of that filthy, dirty earth. The diapotaceous earth would be pushed back through there and it would come back into the pool and make it a little cloudy. And no matter how much was caught by the filter, there was always something that would open up and push a certain amount of it through so that ne the water never cleared up. In fact, it got a little dirtier and a little dirtier as it went along. And I would go back and knock on the back door to report what was wrong with their filter and I enjoyed saying these words. Your filter has lost its integrity. They would look at me like, I didn't know my filter. Well, one of the things I enjoyed when I was in the pool business for 20 years was was uh, keeping my vocabulary alive. <laughs> and uh, it had lost its integrity. In other words, there was just that tear, just that hole, just that weak spot that had worn in there. And that filter was never going to get any better. It was never going to filter that water. It had lost its integrity. And that's what this is calling for. This is what the psalmist is calling for here. He's calling for the Lord to patch up his filtration system. To restore the integrity of that which cleanses his soul. And that's what we need as believers. 
And that's what our prayer, and that's what the Lord does for us. It enables us to, and, and generally, the only way to really fix that was to replace that particular panel. Uh, because I had integrity as a pool man, I replaced one panel. I didn't try to sell them a whole new filter. About a $100 job instead of a $600 job. But I would replace that filter. And if I were a preacher, I'd preach this. That's what's got to happen to you. You've got to take out that stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. A brand new panel, a brand new heart. And that's what the Lord does for us in regeneration. And that's the call is that God would constantly be restoring to us this integrity. That's a whole lot to say when David says here simply, Lord, unite my heart. Now let's see where are we in verse uh, 12. Oh my, we better move along. Oh, give, uh, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart I will glorify your name forever. What is David promising to do here? He's promising to worship. Look at the two key words. I will give thanks. I will glorify. That's worship of the true God. In fact, that's the thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the, that the unrepentant heart, the unregenerate heart, the sinful heart, the dead heart, the lost soul does. It says they do not glorify God, neither are they thankful. He says it real simply in Romans, in one verse. That's what is owed to God. He is to be glorified. He is to be thanked. Thanksgiving and doxology. Eucharist. That's literally Thanksgiving. Eucharist and doxology are the core pillars of our genuine worship before the Lord. Calling upon Him, thanking Him for what He's done and lifting up His name for This is what our first question that we read a few moments ago from the Westminster Shorter Catechism about the duty that we have is to glorify God. Verse 13, For great is your steadfast love toward me, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Here's this word. We've seen it several times in Old Testament passages. It occurs more than once in this particular psalm. It's that Old Testament word which is trans translated here, steadfast love. It was translated in the old King James, loving kindness. It's God's covenant love. It's his, it is beyond His mercy. He goes to where He is not ever going to back down again. He's never going to let it, anything happen to fail. God worked in great human history with the earliest generations. And finally He came to the conclusion He regretted. He had made man. He destroyed them off the face of the earth with a flood with the exception of one man and his family. God started all over again with this family. And moved along until they got so far from God they wanted to find God their own way and they built a tower. So God began another. Yet again, He started over with humanity. And there you come to Genesis where God calls Abraham. And when God calls Abraham, He calls Abraham in terms of a covenant. In terms of a covenant, He makes a commitment that He's going to save, that He's going to redeem, that He's going to multiply, He's going to bless with blessing, especially, of course, the blessing of the seed, which is Christ. He is going to bless them no 
matter what. And that's the plan of salvation under which we currently operate. When the gospel call comes to you, it comes to you in terms of a covenant. God has promised He is not going to fail. We're not going to do it like we did in the days of Noah. We're not going to do like we did in the days of the Babel Tower. God is going to succeed in His anointed, in His Christ. He's going to bring you to salvation. He's going to save you completely. He's going to keep you for all eternity. And you're going to be His forever. That's the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God in His operations. He is going to do it. He is not going to fail. He is going to, He's begun a good work in you. He's going to complete it. He's begun a good work in creation. He's going to complete it. He's going to pull it together with a new creation. God's got a magnificent plan that He's going to do. And great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. The power of personal testimony. How many in this room, and I'm not going to ask a show of hands, I wish this was a Baptist crowd, I would ask for a show of hands. How many in this room have a personal testimony? You can say to the Lord, I see that hand, you may put it down. (laughs) How many of you know, if you can raise your hand and say, this is what the Lord has done for me. He has picked me up out of a horrible pit. He has put my feet upon a solid rock. He's established my goings. He's put a song in my heart. A song of praise to His name. When you know what God has done for you, when you know what God has picked you up out of, when you remember the stench and the fire and the bitterness, and the loss, and the despair of where you were when God saved your soul by His marvelous mercy and brought you up out of that horrible pit. You'll be able to say with David, you'll be able to say with David, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. I don't know, I wasn't there, nobody else was, but I've got a feeling the day that Jesus rose from the dead before the dawn of that first day when He woke up, He said, you have delivered my soul from Sheol, from the pits of death and hell. This is a resurrection passage. This is a passage that talks about what God has done for us ultimately in our salvation. You have saved my nephesh, my soul, my whole self from the depths of Sheol, not just Sheol. It's not enough to go down into a pit, but it's to go down into the depths of the pit. Maybe at the shallow end of the pit you can see light. But when you get to the depths of the pit, you know there's no light, there's no hope, there's no help. And when God pulls you out of that place, when He pulls you out of that circumstances, when He saves you from that condition, that condition of depravity and helplessness and lostness, then you know you've been saved. A lot of times people don't give much of a testimony because ain't much happened to them. But the, but the apostles didn't feel that way. They said, we cannot help but testify to that which we've seen and heard. There's nothing like the joy of personal experience. If you have not some notion of personal experience that is in your viscera, you don't know the grace of God in its fullness. Yet. Yet. Because there's a call 
of mercy ringing out every single day in your life. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Your life, whether it's a rotten life or a good life, either way, you need Christ. You need Christ. And that's what David now is testifying. And as I said, I believe it might have been even the, the Lord, because here's what happened. Verse 14, uh, this may be David. Uh, two times we find David was pursued uh, in, in a very serious way. He was pursued, remember, by Saul before he was ever king. Saul pursued David, and he pursued David into the wilderness. And David had to flee for his life. Another occasion later on, much later on in his, in his life, David was the king, but he had been uh, rebelled against and deposed by his own son Absalom. And so David had to flee again for his life. And guess where he went to this time? Not the wilderness, he went to a garden. Read it. He went out of Jerusalem from the city of David, down across the mountain and across the Kidron Valley, the little river there, the little stream, into the garden. The garden where Jesus prayed. The garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means press. It means the olive press. He went into the desperate situation. And this is how David described the situation. I don't know which one's in view here. Maybe both. Maybe, maybe both. But listen to what David's actual circumstances in. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. These are people trying to kill him. These are ruthless men. Now, Jesus had that same band of men after him. And where did they find him? They found him in that garden. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago when he was betrayed and arrested. That ruthless men that were seeking to kill him found him and they were, he was betrayed by Judas and they bound him and took him then as the sacrificial bound to sacrifice. They took him right where he ought to go to the high priest. And here's David calling out in this same way. And it says here, they do not a bed of ruthless men seek me. They do not set you before them. Well, if I had all day to preach upon this, I would because this is what David is saying and I believe the Lord is saying too. These men that are coming to kill me, this band of ruthless men, these insolent men, these murderous men that are coming to kill me don't have any regard for you, Lord. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in love. They're not interested in goodwill. They're not even interested in justice. They're not interested. They have no regard for life. And I think that's where, if we're not careful in this country, we're about to be governed by a group of ruthless persons. I'm not going to be and just say men. Men and women. And whatever else they pretend there is. We are going to be governed by ruthless people. People who what? Do not set you before them. They don't have the law of God. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have a notion of mercy. They don't even understand justice. Not Bible justice. And yet they will seek to govern us at the local level through magistrates, the state level, federal level, and what's worse and probable is an international level. We'll be governed by these kinds of people. You don't know what kind of situation you're in until you see what David saw here and what Christ saw here. And he was about to stand trial before a court that was absolutely void of life, light, truth, 
justice, mercy. And that's the circumstance he's in. Well, I'm out of time, but I'm not out of sermon. If you'll permit me one more reference here, a couple of verses and we'll do it. Verse 15, I think you recognize this. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Anybody recognize that verse? Yeah, David is quoting Moses. He's quoting the law. He's quoting to Exodus chapter 34. And I was going to spend some time, but I won't. But this is basically when Moses has destroyed the first set of of commandments, the tables. The Lord tells him to get two more fresh, clean tables and, and come before him. And the Lord is going to write upon those tables with his finger the law. The commandments. He's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments. And usually when we hear the word law, we kind of stiffen up like, oh no, here comes the, here comes the rigid stuff. And it's going to come from a severe lawgiver. But listen to how the Lord describes Himself. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood before Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I love that passage. The Lord stood and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's the Lord preaching. And guess what the Lord preaches when He preaches? He preaches about the Lord. He preaches about Himself. I think most preachers ought to preach more about the Lord. The Lord does. That's, that's beside the point. The Lord descended and stood before Him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and, and proclaimed. This is what the Lord said. The Lord. This is the Lord talking about the Lord to Moses. The Lord. The Lord. There's emphasis there in repetition. A God merciful gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Here's the Lord giving the Ten Commandments and what's on His heart. Love. Forgiveness. He already knows they're going to break these commandments. God gives us His commandments not so we can get, keep them and get saved thereby. There's no hope of that. He gives us the Ten Commandments out of grace. The giving of the law under Moses was part of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It was enabling His people to know what He expected of them and how they could live before Him and what His righteous standards were and that He could set a law and an order and a justice system for them that would honor life, that would honor marriage, that would honor private property, that would honor the earth, that would honor the Sabbath, that most of all, honor the Lord and honor parents. God was giving His people in the commandments a transcript of His nature as to how He wanted the people to live. What a wonderful thing for somebody to tell you how they can please you so that you don't have to guess and make mistakes and fail and offend and hurt. But you can just begin to fulfill the commandments knowing that there's forgiveness. There is time and again, there's mercy and steadfast love. And then finally, Verses 16 and 17. Turn to me and be gracious. Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. This is where I think we go right on beyond David. We go right on beyond 
me and you, and we go straight to Christ. Because this particular passage here applies so beautifully to him. In his prayer, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. That was the Lord's prayer to the Father throughout his lifetime. And the Bible says that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And he cried out and he poured his heart to go, out to God. The apostle tells us that's how Jesus prayed. And notice the reference here. Save the son of your maidservant. Who is this sweet, precious maidservant? Well, she called herself the servant of the Lord in the Magnificent. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And here it is here. This is the Lord's plea to His Father during His incarnation and His time upon the earth. And then finally, show me a sign of your favor. Jesus told him, said, I'm not going to show you but one sign. Sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale. In the fish, rather. There you have the sign. And He says, we're going to take and put me in the belly of the earth, in the pit, in Sheol. You're going to put me in the grave. And on the third day, I will rise again. That's the sign of God's favor. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If I don't stop right now, I won't stop. 